morning. It's a joy to be here. Uh, as Mark said, I'm, I live in Fairfield, Connecticut now. I originally grew up in, in Connecticut and uh, love uh, to be a part of your church. And what we're going to talk about today is the idea of joy. And so coming and joining in your joy, it's been now, you know, every several months has been a sweet gift for me. Let me read from, uh, from our psalm. It's Psalm 87. You can turn there. If you're kind of new to the Bible, just stick your fingers in the middle and open it up and you'll probably be in the Psalms. Turn to number 87 or else it's also there written in your pamphlet. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken O city of God, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia, Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now, if you're like me, you probably love Wikipedia pages, Cliff Notes, the kind of abbreviated versions of really complex things, especially if they do a good job of actually communicating and instructing you. In some respects, that's what the Psalms are. Some have said, uh, uh, various theologians, they call the Psalms, each one of these little songs, basically, that are in the, in the middle of our Bible, a little Bible. That in each one, you get all of the compre- comprehensive uh, revelation in little bit of snippet forms. And so as you move through the Psalms, you get almost all doctrine, all revelation about who God is. Now, that is good news that we are in the Psalms, and uh, they are helpful. But today, Psalm 87, even as you're reading it, if you've read it before, you might find, wow, this is a particularly difficult Psalm to understand. In many respects, all the Psalms can be challenging to understand for us as we study them. We're fairly used in our Western world to kind of practical line-by-line argumentation, whereas the Psalms, they come at us with more of an aesthetic than an argument. They get us with not just words, but also wonder, and in that wonder and in that imagery is meant to actually be much of the truth that it's trying to convey to us. So let me just translate for you as we start into this psalm, the fundamental theme of this passage. I've said it already. The fundamental theme, the thing that God wants us to understand today is joy. This is our passage today, and it's going to reveal for all of us where we can find a life of joy. That's relevant for me. I'm sure that's relevant for you. You probably know somebody who's got that contagious laugh. Adriana's one of those people for me. Uh, You can't help but laugh when you're around her. My mom has got this great snort that when she starts laughing and snorting, you just cannot help be be tickled. Uh, Maybe if you've seen, there's a viral video right now going on uh, across the internet. There's 40, yesterday when I saw this, 44 million people have watched this basically house mom sitting in the middle of a Kohl's parking lot, pulling out this Chewbacca mask and putting it on. You need to just... When you go home, don't do it now, but when you go home, Google house mom Chewbacca mask. And she proceeds for about three and a half minutes just to laugh hysterically. And you cannot help but laugh. And y'all, that's just the way it is with joy. 
That is the nature of joy. It overflows. It's contagious. It's magnetic. Whenever there's something, I'm sure you've experienced this, something that fills you with joy, you cannot help but go share it, whether it's a great movie or a great ice cream place or a new restaurant in town. The first thing you want to do is be that first person to go tell somebody else and not just tell them about it, but then bring them there and let them take that, taste that taco for the first time. You know that feeling. Maybe it's a grandparent. It's your, your, that picture of your latest grandchild. You cannot help but share that joy. That's the nature of joy. So if we're searching for joy, let me ask you this. What better place to find it than in the joy that God has? If some house mom putting on a Chewbacca mask can make us laugh, what will happen when we get caught up into that which brings God his greatest joy? Think about it. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to find the joy of the creator, and in so doing, I'm convinced all of us will be captured up into a a life-changing, life-transforming, world-altering, eternal joy for each of us. Let me just pray to that end. Oh, gracious God, your kindness, your mercy we've sung about, and now as we come to this passage, we really are struck by your generosity, that you, the most joy-filled hope-filled, life-filled of all beings would be so generous that you would condescend to share that joy with each of us this morning and day after day and day after day all the way into eternity. And so we ask that you would come and you would unite faith to these words and then you would transform us and we would have a real experience of a lasting joy that comes from being in your presence. We pray this because of Jesus, your great joy. And we ask that he, through this message, would become our great joy. Amen. So Psalm 87, what is it that God delights in according to Psalm 87? This is going to be really our first question today. We're going to look at three questions. The first one is, what is it? What is this joy that I'm talking about, that Psalm 87 is talking about? And the answer is simple in Psalm 87. His joy is found in Zion. Let me read it for you, and then I'll explain what this means. I'm just going to start with one through three, and I'm going to read it almost, uh, the Psalms, because there's imagery, because there's art form in it, their translation actually has heavy influence in our ability to understand it. So I'm going to try to take out a little bit of our English translation and just give you some of the, some of the idea here of what it is in the original language. His foundation in the holy mountain. Yahweh loves the gates of of Zion, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious words are spoken, O city of God. Hopefully, as I read that for you, and as you've been chewing on it a little bit in the first few minutes, you hear this strong emphasis in these lines about a, about, about a place, a significant sense of place. They begin praising this city, Zion, praising it because this is the foundation of God, the city of God. Zion is the place where God's presence is known. Okay, that's what we're going to see over and over. What, what is God's joy? His joy is in Zion. That's where his presence is known, according to this passage. Now, for most of us, Zion has very little meaning. Maybe we've heard some song sung about it. Maybe we've read it through the scriptures every once in a while and just kind of you know, one of those, you skip over it, like some random uh, destination that you heard about, Montauk, you know, if, if from Connecticut. Like, I don't know where that is, you just keep going. And maybe that's what it was for us in Zion. We heard this word and didn't really mean anything. 
Zion is first mentioned in relation to a battle in which King David takes, a whole, takes this city for Israel. And so it's often known, Zion, as the city of David, and it's a reference to Jerusalem. But later on, Zion, or Jerusalem, would be the place where God's, this Ark of the Covenant, that was a significant uh, object of uh, symbol within the worship of Israel. And that Ark represented God's very presence. And that Ark is brought up into Jerusalem. And from that day forward, Zion became known as the city of God, the city where God's very presence would be known. If there's a destination on the map of the world where you can find God the way the Israelites thought about it, is it was Zion. That's his address. It's pretty profound. For all of us who have ever spent our you know, waking days searching, wondering, where can I find, find God? If you ask an Israelite back in the day, they would say, oh, it's easy. You find him in Zion. That's where his presence is fully known. This is his city. Listen to a few other passages. Just give you a glimpse of kind of how an Israelite would have understand this. Psalm 9 through 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Or Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. All of this for an Israelite and then for the scriptures themselves. And now it's inviting us, the Bible is inviting us to think about There, significantly in Zion, is God's very presence. Now, Israelite understood that God was everywhere at all times. They did also, you can see all that all throughout the scripture as well, that they saw this cosmic presence of God over all the earth. But they also believed in a real way that God had made his distinct, tangible presence known in a specific place, namely in Jerusalem, known as Zion. So this then is why our Psalms declare Zion as God's foundation. Here, in this holy mountain, God has grounded his very self. And thus, he loves her. He loves her more than even all the other places of Jacob. He made no other place, no other residence for himself other than Zion. That's how this psalm is setting up Zion and raising our expectations of what we should think. And that's why there's this this phrase here at the end of verse 3. Notice, glorious things are spoken, or glorious words are spoken. And the way the psalm is going to unpack... That phrase, verse 3, is implying the rest of the psalm. These are going to be the glorious words. But also in a very real way, what the psalm is saying is glorious words are spoken. Oh, city of God. The glorious words are the fact that there is a city known as the city of God. I mean, could there be a more glorious word declared of anything, any place? I mean, think about it. For those of us who are, would consider ourselves either New Yorkers or New York-leaning people, you know, we kind of know this. You got New York City, known as the Big Apple, or in a little more pretentious way, we'll say the city. That's all that needs to be said in the world. You know, where I'm from, um, kind of Bridgeport is known as Park City, or New Haven is known as Elm City. I'm not sure if Southampton's got its own little, you know, kind of phrase. I guess you could just say the Hamptons, and that actually means something all around the world. You just say the Hamptons, and that means something. Well, here, what, what more glorious words to be said? The city of God for a place. Now, in a case that's still not impressing you, we do have a cultural reference to this that can help us understand it. I'm sure most of you have seen The Wizard of Oz, right? And in The Wizard of Oz, there is this emerald city. And why is it known for being such a significant place? Is it the emeralds? Is it the horse of a different color? Is it, is it the little munchkins running around you can get your hair done in a really unique way? No, the emerald city is significant 
because it is the city of Oz, right? In this city, there dwells a great and all-powerful wizard who can answer all of your questions, grant all of your wishes. But obviously, the problem of Oz is that wizard is a sham. He has no real power. He can't offer anything. And yet here we declare, and this psalm declares, as the scriptures declare, that there is a place where God dwells, the city of God, far greater than the city of Oz. This is what Zion is. So the answer to our first question, what does God delight in? He delights in Zion because that's where he uniquely dwells. All right, I'm just trying to get, you need to have that in your mind if we're going to get to the rest of the passage. If you're going to begin to understand the significance as I start saying things about the church, start saying things to you about Jesus, start saying things to you about what it is to be in a community where God is going to dwell. But first, I just want you to have and recognize that this is what the psalm is saying. Here, God dwells in the city of God. So the second stance is going to answer this next question. First, why, or what does God delight in? Second, why? Why is it that he so delights in Zion where his presence is? And here's the answer. It's that in Zion, in his presence, God promises a salvation for all peoples. This is, a, this is an incredibly profound psalm. Seven verses and you're getting so much understanding about who God is. In this city of Zion, God promises a salvation for all peoples. You may have noticed it already, if you're kind of a really digesting kind of the passage, but notice verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves the gates of all the places that God loves most. He loves the gates. Think about it. What a hospitable ruler. It's not his armies. It's not his walls. It's not even the laws. Interestingly enough, in Psalm 87, it's not even the temple itself. The thing that the psalmist says that God loves most about Zion is the gates the entryway into his city, that place in which all peoples can come into his presence, that's what he finds great, unique delight in. It's evident as we continue on in the rest of the passage. Let me read 4 through 6. Listen again. Verse 3, O city of God, and then verse 4, I shall record Rahab, Babylon, that they know me. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, with Cush. This one was born there, they're saying. Of Zion, it shall be boasted. This one and that one were born in her, for the Most High establishes it as so. Yahweh will count as he records the peoples. This one was born there. Now the poetic language of this psalm, it almost conveys this sense of wonder and excitement that God himself actually has as he comes into his city. Poetic language, it's not like God didn't know what he was going to find, but the psalmist is kind of giving us this sense that in God's heart there's this bubbling joy as he walks into his city and almost is like, wow, look at this. And what is it that he finds? He finds Rahab there. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might think this is a reference to that woman, Rahab, but it's actually not. The uh, Israelites used to basically have a nickname for Egypt, and they would call her Rahab. Rahab also meant the great sea monster. Not really all that important, just know that throughout the scriptures, every once in a while, Rahab is used to reference Egypt. And so God walks in and he says, Rahab is here, which is basically saying the Egyptians are here. This great enemy that held Israel in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years is now found in the city of God, worshiping him. And it goes on, not just Rahab, but also Babylon. Babylon throughout the Bible is the quintessential biblical image for apostasy, worldliness, brokenness, adultery. And she's here. And there she is, named by God as the child of Zion. 
Then in almost joyous delight, God says, behold, the Philistines are here. Remember, those are the great enemy of King David's day. They were the first, actually, European peoples that enter into the biblical story. So you've got, now you've got the ancient enemies of Egypt, then the future enemies of Babylon, then the Europeans themselves who are a great enemy of the Philistines. They're here. Tyre is there. This is the great seafaring merchant. Their residence in Lebanon and known as really probably about the most cosmopolitan of the ancient Near Easterns. This would be like for us, I don't know, like people from Hollywood are in Zion. I mean, that's, you got to think about that as you're reading the Bible. These, the people who are hearing these psalms, they had, they had ideas in their mind with each of these people groups. I don't know what that would be for you, but a, a cosmopolitan type people. That would be Tyre. Uh, and then finally, Cush, a reference to Ethiopia. They're all here in the city of God. These people represent the former enemies of, I- of Israel, all those who are aliens, aliens from God throughout the Bible, and that how, now they're here. Those from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, the whole known ancient Near Eastern world. There's supposed to be this reference to all the known world is found here in the city of God. And how did these enemies, how did these alien peoples get to the city of God? And now the seeming surprise of God, this, this kind of idea that God's surprised, gets flipped in order to surprise us in the psalm. Because, of verse th- because three times now, three times, I mean, there's only seven verses. I hope you kind of caught that as we're reading. Three times almost the same thing is said. This one was born in her. These are the glorious words spoken in Zion. Words of new birth. Words of a new citizenship. Words of redemption and transformation. How did these people all get here? God did it. I know it's hard to, for us, maybe even in our world, in our understanding and our worldview, to comprehend what it is that's being said. But you have to have this notion. I mean, maybe for us, I mean, the, the quintessential enemy, right? It's, it's the Nazis. And we have this notion of how vicious in our idea and our mind, how broken, and they're just the worst you could possibly get. They're in the city of God, known as the very children of God. That that's what's happening in this psalm. And you're, it's meant to invoke in us, how could this be? How could Hitler possibly be sitting in the front, front pew of our church? God did this. The remarkable wonder that God did this. He simply names. He simply registers. He simply records. And these ancient enemies of all of Israel now are found Amongst the very people of God, known as citizens. Again, for those of you who love literature, I was an English major, so just to help you kind of grasp how significant this is and how we know that this really is the culmination, and there's something in biblical, uh, the way biblical writers work called the chiasm. And what that means is basically it's kind of a structure that's leading to a point. And so what usually happens is, and so in, in this passage, there's a chiasm. And so verse 3 and verse 6 relate. And then verse 4 and verse 5 are going to relate. And then the culmination of a chiasm is the very middle section that all that's pointing to. You guys with me? Okay, let me show you. So verse 3, excuse me, verse 3 and verse 7, they're, they're relating to one another. Verse 4 and 6 are relating. And then verse 5 then is the climax of the whole poem. And what's the climax? It's this. Of Zion it shall be said, this one was born there. The Lord himself will establish her. God did this. God alone did this. The God, the only God, the holy God, the righteous God, he did this. And that's the climax of the entire psalm. What does God do for his enemies? 
He makes them friends. He makes them sons. He makes them daughters. He makes them citizens. This is who this God is. He has so much joy. So much joy in his presence. He cannot do anything but share it. This is the God that we serve. This is the God who has invited us into his presence today, here, and now. Many of you in this room, I hope, have experienced this in yourself. Maybe recently recognized I was an enemy. I was outside of the gates. I knew nothing about God. And yet this God, this gracious, kind God, welcomed me into his presence. Shared his joy with me. That's who we've come to worship. Now let me show you how this relates to us today. Because maybe you're sitting here thinking, gosh, I... I mean, I read the newspapers a little bit. I kind of know a little bit what's going on in Israel. Am I supposed to go to Jerusalem? Am I supposed to go jump over there, get involved in the Zionist movement, and start you know, championing kind of the restoration of Israel and the renewing of this, this city, Jerusalem, this place, Zion? If that's where God's presence is, is that what I'm supposed to do? No, you're not. Nothing against you know, fighting for that and fighting for justice and peace and righteousness in that part of the world, but that's not what Psalm 87 is speaking about. Notice how verse 5 explains how this new birth happens or how people are brought into God's presence. It's far more than actually a going physically to a place. It's about what God does to you. It's about what God does over you. It's about God naming you. The Most High will establish this in you. So what is it that God does? What is it, according to the Bible, that God does to establish us in his presence? To take us who are enemies, those who are outside the gates of Zion, and bring us in. Is it we're supposed to go there physically? It's not. I'm going to give you a reference. You can turn there if you want. I'll read a little bit of it. It's in John chapter 3. We begin to get Jesus' interpretation of this. In John 3, there's this Pharisee who's a teacher of Israel. He comes to Jesus and he's saying, hey, what do I have to do to be born again? You hear some of that language? This one was born there, Psalm 87 says over and over. God has to establish and declare this one was born in her. What Psalm 87 is saying, there has to be a new birth. You were born into this enemy family and you need to be born again and brought back into a new birth, into a relationship with God. And so Jesus, I'm sure, having Psalm 87 and other Psalms and other passages like in the Old Testament in his mind answers this guy Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this teacher of Israel, he answers him as this teacher is going, well, what do, I, what do we got to do to get into God's presence? And Jesus says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says in verse three, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, there's a necessity of a new birth Jesus is referencing. You have to be born into a new relationship with the living God. How does God go about doing that? Well, again, let me, let me quote for you. You don't have to turn here, but let me, this is Jesus again in the end of John. John 14, 3, Jesus says this. He answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and we will make our home with him. You hear the language of presence, the language of place. If anyone loves me, and we could cross-reference that to John 3. If anyone is born again, then we, God, the Father, Christ, the Son, we will come and we will make our home with him. We will come and you will be in our presence. 
So what I'm arguing today, what I believe Psalm 87 is arguing, is that Zion is the ultimate depiction of God's presence. It's God's home on earth. And I've argued that God's greatest joy is in this place. It's in bringing people, enemies, into this place to be with him. And now here in John 3 and other places throughout the scriptures, you have Jesus telling his disciples and now telling us that if we will listen, if we will love him, then God will come and he'll make his home with us. God will come and make enemies friends. He does so by establishing us in Jesus, by making us born again in a new relationship with himself through Jesus. One thing our church likes to say is that God always reveals himself through his presence and the promise of his saving love. And that's what's happening in Psalm 87. God is saying, my presence is here for you, and as my presence comes amongst you, it will save you. This is what God does in Zion. But now, as I'm showing you in John 14, Zion isn't just an image of a place. Brothers and sisters, it's an image of a person. Okay, this is the huge translation you need to make from Psalm 87 Old Testament into the New. Zion isn't just a place we go to, it's a person we come into a relationship with. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus was declaring over and over. If you've seen me, Philip, then you've seen the Father. If you're in my presence, then you're in the presence of God. That's what Jesus understood. And that's what he invites us to believe. Here is a greater presence, a greater promise. Zion isn't just a place. It's about a person, namely Jesus. Jesus was and is the very presence of God. He's the fulfillment of the promise by which God now can bring foreigners, aliens, and enemies into his presence, proclaiming them sons and daughters. This is the essence of the gospel. That instead of seeing us as enemies, God can now establish us in Jesus. And then instead of seeing us enemies outside the gates, he sees his son in full relationship with him. Every time he looks upon us, he now sees Jesus as we've placed our faith in him. That is what the gospel is inviting you into. That's where salvation comes. It comes in Christ. It is in Jesus that God makes his full presence known. It is in Jesus that God finds his greatest delight. And then he brings us, God brings us into his presence. He proclaims his promised salvation of under, uh, over us by bringing us into his son, Jesus. Hope you can see now. We get to back to Psalm 87. While Psalm 87 ends the way it does. I've answered already for you, what is, it that, what is it that God finds his joy in? Finds his joy in Zion, because that's where his presence is. Why does God find his joy there? Because there salvation is offered to him for all people. So what is our response? That's the last point I want us to see. What is our response? We're to respond by making this, making this place, making his presence our joy. Notice verse 7. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. So out of all this revelation of verses, chapter uh, 87, verses 1 through 6, God delights in his presence, that's where his joy is. His presence is made available to us in Jesus. Now, verse 7, how are we to, spot, how are we to respond? Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. What the psalmist is saying is we are to make Jesus, our joy. That's what the psalm is inviting us to. We're to make the very presence of God, we're to believe and experience the very presence of God as our very joy. Psalm ends by declaring, all the singers, 
All the dancers, all the creators, all the inventors, all the designers, all the wonder workers, all the paper mache crafters, all the adult coloring book creators, all the engineers, whatever it might be, all of us are defined our true ultimate joy in in Jesus. In the very same place, out of Zion alone flows a fountain of salvation for the world. All my fountains are in you. That's how the psalm ends. And that is the invitation of our heart. The invitation the psalm says to us is, is that true of you? The psalm ends asking a question. This is what's true. All the fountains for all of life come out of Zion. Is that true of you? Have you experienced that fountain? Have you taken a drink from that fountain? Every source of life, refreshment, nourishment, sustenance, a metaphor for salvation itself, they come out of Zion. And I remind you, The Bible doesn't have a place in mind as it sings this. It's speaking of a person, namely Jesus Christ. A few months back in Fairfield, my wife has been hosting a few women to study the Bible really for the first time in their life. And one of these women, she really is on this pilgrimage to the city of God. We're not sure if she's quite gotten there yet. She may have, even just in the last few weeks, crossed through those gates. But as she's been on this pilgrimage, she's there studying the scriptures, and she just said this kind of at the end of one of the studies to my wife. She said, you know, for me... A relationship with God had always just kind of been, really, a a religion is kind of how she described it. It had always just been this kind of monotonous, straight path. And you just have to keep going and keep going. But the more I hear you all describe, and the more I read the Bible, what a relationship with God is like, it seems more like a well. A well that you can come back to and day after day draw from and find life in. What was beautiful is she didn't even know she was quoting Jesus. Who thousands of years before, talking to a woman standing by a well, said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give to them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She couldn't have quoted those passages, but she was experiencing and That's the truth. She was beginning to say, I'm hearing you describe that there is a fountain And all fountains are found there. And that fountain is in the very presence of God. And the very presence of God is found in Jesus. She's beginning to come awake to that truth. And that might be you. So I ask that. Do you want joy? This psalm is asking us that question. Do you want it? Do you want a true fountain of life-giving, overflowing, refreshing joy? Then you discover that joy in God. You discover his joy. And you discover the joy that he has in his son. Because it's there in his presence and his promise of salvation that you can find the real joy, God's own joy. There you can be born again. Every one of you. That's what's so amazing about the scriptures. Literally, I would declare the exact same message if actually Hitler were sitting on the front pew. And I could say, the the preachers of the gospel, the declaration of the scriptures could say the exact same thing to every single person in the room. Even you can come into a lasting, full, ultimate joy in Jesus. This is why I had us read from Luke chapter 15, where these parables where Jesus is describing the joy. You might have missed it as you're reading it, but there's this, there's this shepherd who wants to find his 99. He's got 99, but one gets lost, and he goes out and gets him, and he comes back, and he throws a huge party. Just joy. This woman, and she loses a coin, and she goes and sweeps her whole house and invites all her friends when she finds it, and it says joy, joy, more joy in heaven over one repenting sinner. That's how the passage is describing. This is the nature of our God. 
Do you see God like that? Do you day by day go through your life going, man, the joy that I need is found in his presence. And then, and I have his presence in Jesus. He's mine. I'm in a relationship with him. Every single moment I can be in that fellowship and I can experience that joy. I don't have to fly to Israel. I don't have to go on some pilgrimage. I simply have to be reminded again and believe that I am in Christ. I am in the very presence of God. And that, that, that begins also to have some incredibly powerful things about a church. Because what we believe about a church is that God has made his presence known here in this congregation. It's what I prayed with Mark before I came in. It's what I regularly pray for our church in Fairfield, pray for church planning around the world. Is because we actually believe this crazy reality absolutely crazy reality that God has made his presence known through Jesus. And as we come together in his name and declare it forth into our territories, wherever we exist, wherever we live, wherever our churches are, that we really can say to our friends, hey, you're on a search for God. I know you are. I've seen it. I can tell you his address. It's on Montauk Highway. (laughs) You can come here and you can experience the living God in Jesus you realize how that begins to change the reality of what we believe we're doing? As we stand up here and call people into worship, as we take the Lord's Supper, what it is we're inviting our friends up into, the very presence of God, all of their, the, the real problems. This isn't, a, this isn't a sham wizard. Scarecrow, uncourageous lion, tin man, come on. There is a real God and he has revealed himself in Jesus and all their fountains, all of the east end of the Hamptons, all of Long Island, all of the United States, all of the world, all of their fountains are found in him. That's what we believe and that is what is true. I gotta, sorry, I gotta share. I was, I was gonna skip, but I just gotta go there. Um, this is almost cliche at this point. Because of what God is doing. But just to, just to help you believe in God, how much God has joy in the gates. And then to give you confidence in what it is that we're doing as, in a church plant, in a church in general, as we open up these doors to our town. It's almost cliche at this point, but, but, but we're, I don't want to lose it. And the reason why it's coming home to me is because in my town in Fairfield, next to us is Bridgeport. And there's a university that has 4,000 students and 2,500 of them are international students. Most of them coming from China and Saudi Arabia and India. Some of the most difficult places for the gospel to get into people's lives are those three countries. And they're all coming to within two miles from my house. So I'm sitting in my house, and i got three Chinese students sitting around my table. And two of them, one of them is from Long Island. She, she actually, her parents were immigrants and born here. She grew up in a church, and she actually isn't walking with God. And the other two are from China, lived in China, happened to come to be students at University of Bridgeport. And both discovered the fountain of life in Jesus Christ while they're at this, that university. And they're sitting at my table describing to me their salvation, how they came into a life with God. And, it's just, and I'm just recognizing, brothers and sisters, this is, these, are, these are Chinese students. And if you're familiar with what happened, basically, you know, there's, there's a major rebellion. All the missionaries, any Westerners thrown out, most many of them killed and murdered. And this is kind of early turn of the 19th century. And then from 1949 forward, Christianity was declared completely illegal. And so at the time, around 1949, there's estimated maybe one million Christians in the country. And then it's declared illegal, forced to go underground. There can be no Western missionaries. And everybody's thinking, well, this is, it. This is the end. This is the end of the church. There's no way God's gates are going to be open now in China. The Communist Party has just closed them. 
And over those last basically 50 to 60 years, there are good estimates that would say there's now over 160 million Christians in the nation of China. Some will estimate that every single day there are 50,000 people coming to saving faith in Jesus in that country. Let me just, to begin to explain that, what that would mean in my context is that over the, by next Sunday, my entire region of 300,000 people would be saved, would have come into a saving relationship with Jesus. By the end of June, my entire state would be saved. I didn't realize there was like 7.8 million people on Long Island. So we're going to have to wait until December. <laughs> but by Christmas, all of Long Island would have come into the presence of God, discovered that Jesus really is who he said he is. He truly is king. He really is the Messiah. He really is the one who I can have salvation. And the entire island has come to faith. That's what's happening in parts of the world. I just Can you hear God's laughter? Can you think about the joy? I mean, the angels, they must just be getting worn out. More parties over one, and there's 50,000 a day? I mean, it just makes me constantly like Disneyland up there, just constantly celebration, 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 because of the joy of what God is doing as he brings people into his presence. And so that then becomes our invitation as a church, our invitation as Christians. Wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, we have a chance to join God as one of those entry places, as one of those places, whether it's in the, you know, your discipleship model, just that engaging and embracing. That, as crazy as it might sound, your little picnic next week is a place in which somebody might come into the gates of God's presence. That's how profound it is, what we're doing, what it is for us to be Christians. We know the living God, and we can invite people to come and experience him. That's what it is for us to be a church. That's what it is for us to be united with God. I invite you to begin to pray. Pray how you can join and continue to join because that's where God's joy is. This is where that Mark Twain that I put on the title started. The nature of joy is that it's only fully experienced when it's divided. God wants to divide his joy with you. Join him in that. Experience his joy as he brings all peoples into a saving relationship with himself, into his presence through Jesus. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you that most of us, many of us, I pray, in this room have been brought into those gates. We've been welcomed into your presence, and we are just so grateful to be filled with that joy. And so we ask now that as we glimpse you and know you better, that joy would propel us forward, that we would go forth believing that this is just a haven of joy because it's a haven of your presence, and that would give us a great delight to welcome others in. And that we would see this type of renewing and reviving work in the east end of the Hamptons, the east end of Long Island, and that would spread all throughout the world. Lord, I pray that you do it in New England, that you plant in Fairfield a faithful congregation that would believe that there is the real presence of God because there Jesus is known and there people can be saved. And we would see this spread all throughout the world. And we would be welcomed in in the final days in that great ultimate feast, that great feast of joy where you now are reigning supreme over all the world with all those that have been named, that have been born again and named as sons and daughters and children of Zion, sons and daughters of you, God. We thank you for this gift and this invitation. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.